Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, host of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Clinical Guidelines podcast series. Today, we will be discussing the 2018 update of the Clinical Practice Guidelines on Diagnosis, Treatment, chemoprophylaxis, and institutional outbreak management of seasonal influenza. Influenza needs no introduction. Everyone's familiar with it, and while most people recover from uncomplicated influenza, the flu can cause serious complications among vulnerable individuals, particularly very young children, older adults, pregnant and postpartum women, and individuals with chronic disease, and those who are immunosuppressed. From 2010 to 2018, influenza epidemics were associated with 4.3 to 23 million medical visits, 140,000 to almost a million hospitalizations, and 12,000 to almost 80,000 respiratory and circulatory deaths each year in the United States. And the amount depends on the uh, flu that is circulating that year and its severity. It's clear that routine annual influenza vaccine is recommended for everyone aged six months or greater, and those recommendations are issued annually by the CDC. The details of the recommendations, the strains covered, the place of trivalent versus quadrivalent vaccine, regular dose versus high dose, is all covered in the CDC guidance. Today, we won't be discussing vaccination, as important as it is. But that's covered in the CDC document. Today, we're going to emphasize the IDSA's guidelines on the diagnosis of flu, treatment, prophylaxis, and institutional outbreak management. And these are critically important issues. Timely diagnosis may decrease unnecessary lab testing for other etiologies. It may decrease the use of antibiotics unnecessarily. It may improve the effectiveness of infection prevention and control measures and increase appropriate use of antiviral medicines. Early treatment with antivirals reduces the duration of symptoms and the risk of many of the complications complications, as well as hospitalization, and may decrease mortality among high-risk populations. Joining us today is one of the members of the Guidelines Committee, Dr. Andrew Pavia. Dr. Pavia is the George and Esther Gross Presidential Professor at the University of Utah and Chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, University of Utah, Salt Lake City. Welcome, Dr. Pavia. Thank you, Neil. Let's let's first discuss which patients should be treated for influenza, and let's start with outpatients. What do the guidelines recommend for outpatients? So the guidelines make a clear distinction based on the risk of complications. For patients who are at risk of complications, those groups that you already mentioned, the use of an antiviral is recommended for all outpatients with influenza. Uh, The other group of outpatients that should be treated are those that have severe disease. So somebody who is profoundly ill and looks like they might be at risk for progressing to hospitalization. For patients who are at normal risk, and we won't say low risk, but those who don't have risk factors, treatment has modest effectiveness. It reduces the duration of symptoms for about a day. And so the guidelines say that treatment can be considered in that group, and it becomes really a discussion between the physician and patient. Okay. And how about for inpatients? So for inpatients, 
the guidelines are very clear based on uh, all the evidence we've accumulated since the 2009 pandemic that all inpatients with influenza should be treated with an antiviral. That's nice. That's straightforward and clear. Things are often not that way, as we'll talk about a little uh, later in some areas. Uh, Does the way in which we collect specimens for influenza matter? It does, uh, as does the test. And um, each test has slightly different recommendations for collection. But what is generalizable is that flocked swabs generally work better than other types of swabs, such as Dacron swabs. With modern PCR tests, mid-turbinate and anterior nasal specimens are often adequate, but nasopharyngeal specimens are the best. Another uh, very important element which we point out in the guidelines is that for patients with lower respiratory tract disease, that is those who have an obvious pneumonia, it's important to get a lower respiratory tract specimen. What we see with some frequency in immunocompromised patients is that the upper airway can test negative, and yet influenza is found in a tracheal aspirate or a BAL. Isn't that interesting? And I'm not sure that's broadly appreciated. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sensitivity and specificity of those tests? And of course, that matters a lot if we have someone coming in with classic flu symptoms um, and they have a negative swab, what do we do? Um, so if you can talk a bit about sensitivity and specificity. It's a very important issue, and it really depends on the test that's being used. For many years, there are rapid influenza diagnostic tests, which are based on uh, ant- antigen detection, usually using, using lateral flow assays, have been very popular, particularly in outpatient settings. And emergency rooms, they were cheap, they were rapid, but they were also very insensitive. The sensitivities since 2009 have ranged uh, from as low as 30% to about 70%, meaning that the false negative rate is quite high. If you have a high pretest probability, that is, it's flu season and a person has classic symptoms, a negative rapid test has really no uh, is of no help because the negative predictive value is terrible. That's all changed a lot recently, and we emphasize that in the guidelines because PCR and other nucleic acid detection tests are now available that have rapid turnaround. And some of these are actually CLIA-waved and can be used in clinics and emergency departments. For many of them, the cost is quite reasonable. And the sensitivity of the PCR-based tests is much, much better. It's in the uh, range of 90 to 98%, depending on the platform. Now, specificity is uh, quite good. A positive test with virtually all of the tests we have usually indicates the detection of influenza. So these are really, that's a really helpful advance. So these are about as close as it gets to a hang your hat on it test in in medicine. And so they really are good now, both for deciding what to do with individual patients, as well as making decisions uh, about case identification in an institutional setting, uh, as we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, let's move on to treatment. Uh, which patients with suspected or confirmed influenza uh, should be treated with antivirals? So um, for inpatients, the answer is really easy. 
it is all in patients with influenza. Now, we know that antivirals are most effective when used early on, and in the trials done in healthy outpatients, there was little benefit. There was really no benefit if antivirals were started more than 48 hours after the onset of symptoms. That's not true for inpatients. There are good data suggesting a clinical benefit, uh, which includes prevention of ICU admission and even a mortality benefit when treatment is initiated up to six days after symptom onset among very sick patients. For outpatients, it's important to realize, though, that the treatment benefit is rapidly lost after at about 48 hours. That's that's very helpful information, I think, on both ends, because I've heard mis- mistaken understanding of that on in both outpatient and inpatient settings. Um, which antivirals are preferred, and uh, how long should people be treated for? So the preferred antivirals are the nerminidase inhibitors in the guideline recommendations, and these include also Tamivir, well-known as Tamiflu, and Zanamivir, brand name Relenza. Uh, What's important to realize is that there is a a new class of drugs which are based on uh, inhibition of the cap-dependent endonuclease. And the first licensed one of these drugs, Biloxivir, was licensed in October. We do not include it as a recommended antiviral simply because of the timing. Uh, but it does. Ha- we do comment on the data and the guidelines, and the efficacy is equivalent to and possibly better in some circumstances than also Tamivir. The older drugs, uh, which are amantadine and romantadine, have pretty much lost all utility. And then there's a third nerminase inhibitor, which is not used nearly as much, which is the IV nerminase inhibitor, Paramivir. The limitations on its use are that it's quite expensive and that it has not been shown to be superior to ulcitamivir in patients who can absorb ulcitamivir. Makes sense. Now, one of the real challenges is differentiating flu from bacterial infections. Um, We see lots of people with severe symptoms. And do the guidelines offer any advice as to when we should think about a patient's symptoms being due to a bacterial infection? Uh, They do. And it's worth noting that if you look at patients admitted uh, to the hospital proved to have flu, uh, many more of them end up getting antibacterials, which they often don't need, than get antivirals, which have a benefit. However, we uh, do identify a number of situations in which you should be worried about bacterial co-infection, and that would include patients with overwhelming disease with evidence of uh, extensive pneumonia, for example, or profound shock and admission, as well as those who uh, start to get better and then suddenly get worse. That's a classic, easily recognizable scenario in which you should suspect bacterial superinfection. Um, The other situation certainly to consider it in is patients who uh, don't have overwhelming disease but fail to improve after three days. We looked at the data on the use of surrogate markers uh, of infection, or rather biomarkers of bacterial infection, like uh, CRP and procalcitonin. The data are not completely uh, clear-cut yet, but I think that procalcitonin in particular can be very 
useful, particularly in ruling out bacterial infection. The negative predictive value is really quite good. The positive predictive value, a little bit less so. Huh, that's very interesting. Um, let, let's now move on to prophylaxis. And let's start with prophylaxis outside of an institutional setting. And then we'll talk about uh, a, a very important area of what to do with regard to prophylaxis within institutions and uh, often nursing homes. But, but starting with prophylaxis outside, uh, when should we think about pre-exposure prophylaxis or post-exposure prophylaxis outside of an institutional setting? Pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, which is a term not everyone's familiar with, refers to giving antivirals for the entire season. And post-exposure prophylaxis is doing so after somebody's been in close contact, such as a household contact or a roommate with influenza. Pre-exposure prophylaxis can be considered for patients at the highest risk of severe complications of influenza uh, such as those who've received a hematopoietic stem cell transplant, and also for those who are at very high risk for whom vaccine is contraindicated or unlikely to be effective. For most patients, even those in a risk group, early empiric treatment is a very good alternative. Now, post-exposure prophylaxis is a little bit uh, different and probably can be used more broadly. So anybody who is at uh, substantially high risk, who has a close exposure to a patient with influenza, one can consider using post-exposure prophylaxis. But a really important caveat to that is that often the exposure has occurred more than 48 hours uh, before they come to you. And in that case, they may already be incubating influenza. Because the prophylactic dose is once daily, it's unlikely to be effective if it's started when they're really incubating active disease and, in fact, may select for resistance. So prophylaxis in the post-exposure setting should only be used within 48 hours of exposure. If it's been longer than that, then uh, early initiation of full treatment dose is probably a better alternative. That's an important pearl. Uh, let's now go on and talk about prophylaxis in the long-term care, care setting. Uh, when should a long-term care facility start influenza prophylaxis, and, and what should that look like? Influenza outbreaks in long-term care facilities can be really devastating. Uh, often they result in a number of deaths. It's also kind of difficult to spot influenza among very old and very frail patients who know, may not mount a fever. And because of this, there's been quite a bit of research on using antiviral prophylaxis in institutional settings. The guidelines recommend that whenever two or more patients within an institution have been diagnosed with influenza, that all of the patients on that unit or portion of the long-term care facility should receive antiviral prophylaxis. We weren't able to make a clear recommendation on whether you should do it for the whole facility, uh, and that really requires some judgment as to how much patients move between a unit uh, and how much you can wall off the affected unit. 
That's a very good point. Um, some places it's easy. They can deliver meals to the rooms. Other places there's a central cafeteria or um, activity room. And then once prophylaxis is started, uh, what are the recommendations for how long it ought to continue? So it should be continued for a minimum of 10 days after the last active case of influenza. And that's that's one of the recommendations that was based more on pathophysiology than on clear evidence, although that's the regimen that was used in some of the successful studies. And then how should institutions approach, let's assume that every one of the staff were vaccinated, because I think that's what most places are uh, requiring right now, but do staff also need to uh, have chemoprophylaxis when there's an institutional outbreak? This is a difficult area because there aren't a lot of data on which to base a recommendation. And a lot of the work was done at a time when staff were not completely vaccinated. So the most important thing is to have complete vaccination of the staff. And sadly, uh, I don't think 100% of facilities in all states are able to maintain complete immunization of their staff. If all, so if the staff are not completely vaccinated, one can consider starting prophylaxis and giving vaccine and continuing prophylaxis during the two weeks it takes for the vaccinated people to mount a good immune response. The other setting in which one can consider prophylaxis for the staff would be in a year in which the vaccine has very low efficacy, and that happens at least once every 10 years. Hmm. Interesting. And then a common scenario is we know that there's some flu in the area and a patient comes down with symptoms that are consistent with the flu, but we don't have uh, the test back yet. Um, in a long-term care facility, when should empiric antiviral treatment be considered? In long-term care facilities, at least until we deploy some of the rapid test platforms, it often takes a while to get the results back. And so it's important to begin empiric therapy as soon as you suspect influenza while awaiting the test results. By definition, these are very frail patients who are at very high risk of complications. And you can always stop the oseltamivir or the other uh, antiviral uh, once you get a negative test back. This has been such a helpful discussion about a critical area for all of us. We've covered a lot of ground, diagnosis, treatment of both inpatients and outpatients, details on the sensitivity and uh, the much improved sensitivity and specificity of the tests that most of us are using, and the often uh, confusing but critically important approach to prophylaxis in a long-term care setting. I want to thank you so much for joining us. You've really taught us all a lot. Well, thank you very much for covering this important area. I think there are a lot of misconceptions and a lot of gaps in people's knowledge, and hopefully we've done a little bit to help with those. For more information on the practice guidelines on uh, diagnosis, treatment, and chemoprophylaxis of influenza, a full version of the guidelines is available on the IDSA's website, and that is idsociety.org. For the IDSA, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and uh, thank you for listening.